Our scripture lesson this evening is in Ephesians chapter 4. As we continue our quick survey through this letter of Paul. And this is written by the Apostle Paul, but under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the very Word of God, and because we have a God who is perfect, who makes no errors, we know that as he gave this Word to Paul, it was perfect, and Paul was superintended by the Holy Spirit, and so it was recorded perfectly, and so we do read the very Word of the Sovereign God, as we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32 this evening. So let us attend with reverence to the reading of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this evening. May he bless its reading, its preaching, and its hearing. Well, many a magazine cover or a makeover TV show, I, we haven't had any network TV or cable, we just stream everything these days for a long time, so I don't even know, I uh, assume there are probably still makeover shows on, on TV. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, I don't think, I'm not sure if Oprah is still on television, but uh, she used to do this kind of thing. Uh, They would tout ways that people, and especially women it seemed, can discover the new you. Uh, The fact is, you are who you are. Clothes and personal appearance may or may not reflect your personality well. Uh, They may affect the way people perceive you and thus the way you interact with others. But changing them won't really change who you are on the inside. You are who you are. 
Certainly behaviors change. We can grow. We can be determined to act differently. But self-identity does not change. These days people are very concerned about self-identity. And when I say that self-identity does not change, I don't mean that just because you feel that you are something that that makes it true. A boy who thinks he's a girl is not a girl. He still has an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. He's still male. doesn't make him male, a female to feel a certain way. Plus, I would have to ask the, the epistemological question. That's the question of how you know something. If you've never been a girl, how do you know that you feel like a girl? What do you know? How do you know what it feels like to be one and vice versa? If you're a girl, how do you know what it feels like to be a boy? We are who we are. Our identity does not change unless, here's the big caveat, God the creator does a new work of creation within you to make you a new person. God creates and only he can change identities. Now again, we should not confuse identity with behavior, with uh, things that we desire to do. Because God did not make me a sinner That's part of the curse. One of the things that we've inherited from our first parents who chose to sin. So we cannot latch on to a sinful... Every one of us has sinful desires, so we can't say that because this sinful desire comes within me, that must be the way God made me, and because that must be the way God made me, it must be good. No, that's not the way it works. And in fact, that's part of what Paul's getting at here. We had an identity as a sinner before... As someone who was in rebellion against God, someone who was dead in trespasses and sins, and now we're something else if we are in Christ. If God does a new creation within you, you're now alive in the Spirit. You're now a saint, a holy one in His sight. Paul has already told us of the new identification of believers with Christ and with one another in this letter. We are one people in Christ, so we used to be from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of of, uh, tags on our identity, if you will. But now we're one people in Christ. We're inheritors of the kingdom promises that were made to Abraham. He's assured us that we were once dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, and now God has made us alive in Christ. That's a different, that's an identity change, dead to alive. So now after stressing the unity of the body of Christ, the church, Paul begins telling us the effects that this work of new creation has in us as individual Christians. He points to the difference between how we used to walk. Remember, walking is a a metaphor in Scripture, uh, how we behave. And so he talks about the way we used to walk and the way that our remaining sin within us while we're still in this fallen world wants us still to walk and drags us in that direction and how, on the other hand, we ought now to walk as the redeemed elect people of God. And we know that we cannot do this except by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us that we've noted before in this letter. But we also note that that does involve the choices that we make. So he says here in verses 17 through 19, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, 
having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Notice first these believers, most of whom have been Gentiles in their background, by heritage uh, in the church at Ephesus, they're non-Jewish, are considered to be now a different category than the rest of the Gentiles. As Paul says in Romans 11, Gentile believers have been grafted into the tree of Israel. This passage closely parallels what Paul says about sinful mankind in Romans chapter 1. Their foolish hearts are darkened, and this is the case for all of us before we are saved, and so we can say we, but we say there, I'm pointing to a different category because as a believer in Christ, I'm in a different category than this now. And so Paul speaks in the third person of them and says, their foolish hearts are darkened, Uh, They willfully ignore God for who he really is, and they worship gods of their own imagining. Such rejection of the Lord leads to a downward spiral, as we read in chapter 1 of Romans, from sensuality, especially sexual sin, to openly embracing all manner of wickedness and ruthlessness in the world. So that at the end of Romans 1, Paul is saying that they not only do wicked things, but approve when others do them. We sure see that happening increasingly in our society. The Gentiles, those who are not God's people, walk, behave in several ways. The rest of the Gentiles, as it's placed here. Number one, we note that he says they walk in the futility of their minds. I tried using the illustration when I was teaching at Green Christian School one day of the the Borg from Star Trek who tell everyone resistance is futile. I was trying to explain what the word futile means, so I don't know if any of the students had ever seen Star Trek. So that sort of dates me there. But the villains in Star Trek who would tell their enemies that resistance is futile meaning there's, there's no point in resisting. Why even bother? We're, we're going to win. <laughs> they didn't, though. So, you know. <clears throat> but here Paul is saying they walk in the futility of their minds. The, there's, there's ultimately no sense to it. Where spiritual matters are concerned in terms of righteousness, their ability to reason is broken. And so all their attempts at any attempt at righteousness is really a broken attempt, an inadequate or even a perverse attempt. Human reason alone cannot produce that which is pleasing to God. We'll never argue someone into being a Christian. It takes the Holy Spirit's action. It's because our sin nature corrupts everything, even the way we think. And of course, because we know we have remaining sin in us, even when we're in Christ, we have to be aware of that fact. We might be thinking wrongly about something because even our thinking was broken by our sinfulness. But here talking about those who are outside of Christ, he says they walk in the futility of their minds. Again, so their their minds are futile. They're broken. They're inadequate. Number two... They walk as those alienated from God. 
So they're spiritually separated from him. They live in the realm of darkness. Third, he says they have become callous. So their understanding was darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance, because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness. They're past feeling. They're callous. They're insensitive to righteousness. Think of how sometimes if you ever talk to an unbeliever about why you do things as a Christian, many of them are just utterly clueless. And of course, because the world thinks in terms of of works righteousness, they think we're just following a list of rules trying to make God happy with us so that he'll let us into heaven. That's, of course, not how it works. But that cluelessness is evidence of this callousness of understanding. Think of how people might be wondering, why do you bother, why are you worried about dressing modestly? Why are you worried about behaving in certain ways? It's because there's a moral hardness. This can continue to such a degree that, as Paul says elsewhere, their consciences are seared. It's like they've been cauterized burned and scarred over so that they're no longer able to feel with their conscience. Here he says they're past feeling. And so they no longer have a sense of things being right and wrong. God does give every human being in his common grace some sense of right and wrong. And we see this. This is why we can see in common grace people who don't know the Lord can still do things that we recognize are good. We do know that they have no hope of earning God's uh, good favor because of that. Because, of course, there's always remaining sin with those good deeds. And so they are without hope unless they have a substitute, a sinless substitute in Christ. But we, we know that when some give themselves over more and more to sin, that they become completely callous, even to those good things. And they no longer have any sense of right and wrong that they seem to be aware of, and they don't give themselves over to the good ever, except when it is helpful to them in their own self-interestedness. So that's one another symptom here. They become callous. And fourth, he says, they give themselves over to sensuality, gratifying their physical desires. Think about that. If you're you're completely seared over, insensitive to spiritual things or to moral things, well then, what is there left but your life in this world? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? So they've given themselves over, Paul says, to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. So they're greedy to practice every kind of impure thing. And you don't have to look very far, especially now with the media that we have. It doesn't take a hard look online or uh, or on television or in newspapers, for those of you who still read newspapers and things like that, to find evidence of that kind of callousness to the good. Those who are greedy for every kind of impurity. 
engaging in immoral behaviors that they enjoy more and more, giving up all moral restraints. This happens to varying degrees in individuals and societies. Some seem to be worse than others. But it's the tendency of all who are outside of Christ. Of course, with the fog of war and with misinformation and propaganda, it will be hard and it will be a long time before we know exactly what's going on in Ukraine. There are already a lot of stories that sounded either inspirational or devastating have been debunked. The stories that have come out of, of Ukraine. But no doubt there will be cases of atrocities committed in the war. Because when unrestrained, in a situation that, in which they feel they have nothing to lose, people will do all manner of wicked things. But we as Christ's people are called specifically not to behave and think this way. Remaining sin is in us. It drags on us. It pulls us in the direction of those sorts of things that Paul was just talking about. Otherwise, Paul would have no need to warn us about it. He would say, you are now in Christ. Everything's good. Don't worry about it. Everything you do, is, everything you want to do must be a good thing. Uh, by the way, there is a heresy that teaches that. I heard that in my former denomination sometimes. People thought that the teaching of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means that if I have any desire and the Holy Spirit's dwelling within me, it must be a good desire. It must have come from him. Well, that, of course, ignores a multitude of scriptures that teach us otherwise. But I would note that those same people ignored an awful lot of scriptures and only paid attention to those scriptures which seemed to support what they wanted it to say. But we do have remaining sin. We do have that inside of us that drags upon us, the old self. And Paul speaks of it as the body of death in Romans 7. And so it's as if we're carrying this dead weight with us. And when you're carrying dead weight, you stumble sometimes. But we do have to fight against it and defeat such temptations. And by God's grace, with the Holy Spirit, we can. Paul would have, again, no need to warn us about that if it were not a danger. But he continues in verses 20 and 21, But you have not so learned Christ... If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So such sinful behaviors have nothing to do with Christ. We did not learn Christ. If we learned a Christ that that, uh, teaches or condones our sinful behavior, that's not the real Jesus. And Paul says to those whom he taught, you did not so learn Christ. If we really are united to him... We really have learned and heard and been taught in him. So notice he does have that caveat. He knows that some of the audience of this letter might not actually be converted. There are going to be tares among the wheat. But he says, if you have, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. So notice, by the way, those who have been changed, who are the new man that he's going to talk about here in a few verses, uh, those people who are a new self, a new creation in Christ, they have heard not just the preacher of the gospel, but they heard Jesus. It's Jesus who's speaking through his word when it's faithfully preached. 
It's Him you've heard. It's Him who taught you. As the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Him. He is the truth. If we're really united to Him, if we really have learned, heard, and been taught in Him, then we cannot but hate the sin that we find within ourselves. Because He does. Well, what specifically is it that we have learned, heard, and been taught? In verse 22 and through 24, he says, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So, On the one hand, we see God's action. God is the one who does the creation of this new person within us. He makes us into something new. And at the same time, we have a responsibility to put that on and to take off the old. There is remaining sin with us, but it's it's as if we're taking off a coat and putting on another one. That's actually the verb used there is, is the verb for taking off an outer garment and putting on a new outer garment. Uh, those of you who are old enough to remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, will remember that uh, every time, and I wonder if he got that from, he was a Presbyterian minister, right? Uh, that, uh, he would begin every show by coming into his, his house, his television home there, and he'd be singing how it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and would he take off his outside coat, and he'd put on an inside sweater, uh, and then he'd take off his outside shoes, and he'd put on slippers while he was in the house, while he was singing how he'd always wanted to have a neighbor just like you, and always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. And that's this kind of action that Paul is commending here, but in terms of our righteousness that we put off the old unrighteous self and we put on this new self that God has created. He's clearly established this is God's doing, but he's dealing with the same problem that he struggles with in Romans 7, that he still has remaining sin, and in Christ we are simultaneously righteous and sinners. We are justified, we're declared righteous for Christ's sake, and then empowered by the Holy Spirit, we learn to reject sin and become more and more righteous. And so Paul uses here the image of putting on new clothes, as it were. And notice how this new self, this new nature, this new man, as he calls it, as the Greek literally says, look at how it's the opposite of the old. The old self was futile in mind, darkened in understanding. Uh, The new self is renewed in the spirit of the mind. This morning I quoted from Romans 12 too, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Here Paul says this is a quality of the new self. It's renewed in the spirit of your mind. The old self was alienated from God in sin. The new self is created after the likeness of God. Created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That relationship with God that mankind had when he first created our parents in the Garden of Eden, and that was broken by the fall, 
is restored in Christ Jesus. And we see here the aspect of what theologians will call the already and the not yet. So already we're renewed. We haven't yet seen Eden conditions perfectly because there is still sin remaining with us and we're in a broken and fallen world. But that relationship that we lost when our first parents fell from their state of innocence is actually restored in Jesus Christ. So in that sense, you have as a believer the same relationship that Adam and Eve had in the garden when they walked literally with God in the cool of the day. All mankind is made in the image of God, but the image is broken by our sin. And in Christ, now that image is renewed. So what does living as this new self entail? Paul gives us some good advice here. For one thing, it entails putting away falsehood and speaking truth, as we see in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying... Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And in fact, the, the Hebrew or the Greek word there for lying is a general word for falsity. So not just stop outright lying, but anything that put away anything from yourself that skews or exaggerates or prejudices the truth. As he says there, for we are members of one another. Truth spoken in love is the hallmark of Christian behavior and is especially binding of Christians together. And if you think of the fact that we are one body in Christ, which he's emphasized in this letter already, then when we lie to one another, what are we doing? It's, it's like punching myself in the face. <laughs> my fist hitting my nose. Right? Well, it's, the fist isn't doing itself any favors by hitting the nose of the same body. Truth spoken in love is a hallmark of Christian behavior, and putting away falsehood and speaking the truth is a way that we live as the new self. A second way that we live as the new self is not letting anger, even righteous anger, lead to sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And Paul quotes Psalm 4.4 and alludes to Psalm 37, verse 8, in dealing with this in verses 27, uh, 26 and 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Righteous anger hates evil, injustice, wickedness, immorality, and it's right to be angry at those things. God is angry at those things. But for you and me, being as fallible as we are, that even righteous anger can easily be turned to, by our sin nature into pride. Oh, look at how much more righteous I am than you. If only you would be like me, you wouldn't be doing those things. It can lead to contempt for others. I never would have done that. Of course, the same people that I might say that to could look at me and say, well, look at what you did yesterday. I would have never done that. Well, lest it turn to bitterness or to self-righteousness, we have to let it go before the day ends. Otherwise, we give the devil opportunity to tempt us, an opportunity to undermine the church, to divide and destroy it. So we're not to give opportunity, not to give place to the devil. Don't give him a place 
to get in. Don't give them a toehold or a foot in the door. A third thing we do to live as the new person in Christ, we must give up any dishonest or ungodly means of gaining wealth or making a living. Make an honest living. Doing the work for which we are paid and and being ready with what we earn to be able to help those in need. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that that he may have something to give to him who has need. So notice that that involves a change of attitude. It isn't just that I quit taking things that don't belong to me if I had that temptation before, but it's that I also consider the things I have not to be worth holding on to. That I consider the good of my neighbor more valuable than what I've earned. The fourth thing that we see in living out being the new man in Christ is that we watch our words forsaking corrupt talk. We use edifying speech, as verse 29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Tearing down others with our words is not God-honoring. More specifically, though, the word is corrupt there is the, the Greek word uh, supros. It means something rotten or spoiled or foul. So it can include foul language. It should not be heard among Christians, language that makes people think less of us. And by the way, it's, uh, we know that foul language is the hallmark of, an, of a weak argument. And so I often think that even when I hear people uh, watching or watch uh, videos here or there of uh, people with whom I would agree on many things politically, but they use foul language to make their point, I think we just weakened your argument. That makes our arguments look foolish and silly. Think of what others must think if they hear Christians speaking disrespectfully of others or using foul language. How does that reflect on the church? How does that reflect on the head of the church, on Christ himself? Rather, our words should build up others and point others to God edifying speech. It must be right for the moment and it must be gracious speech. I know from experience the hardest time to speak graciously is when someone has spoken ungraciously to you. It's very easy to snap back, to feel like we got a zinger in on them. But the point here isn't to feel like we won an argument or to feel superior. The point here is to point to Christ. And lastly, a fifth way in which Paul talks about us reflecting Christ and and showing that we are a new creation in Him is in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Whatever we think or say or do, it has to be with an awareness that we are sealed for redemption by the Holy Spirit. If God the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in me, how it must grieve Him when I sin. He isn't just watching me from a distance, you know, on a throne somewhere in the heavens looking down to see what's going on. He's right here. 
He's there because He loves me. He's in you because He loves you. He's claimed you as His own. He has redeemed you. So why would we want to do something that is hateful to Him? We must strive not to do so. Reiterating and summarizing all of those points, Paul says in verses 31 and 32, that all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness is a burning resentment in the Greek word there. Wrath, an impassioned rage. Anger is a lingering hostility. Clamor refers to loudness, a lack of self-control, particularly in conflicts. Speaking evil of others is pretty straightforward. Malice can also be translated as viciousness. Uh, Greek is a general term for just evil things. But rather than be like that, but we have to always be self-examining. Was I vicious? Was I, did I have malice? Was I lacking self-control? Did I have a burning resentment, bitterness? But instead of that, what we're to do is be kind, to be tender-hearted, to be forgiving, remembering that God has forgiven us. We reflect God's forgiving character. We who have been forgiven so much would be awfully petty not to forgive the relatively minor offenses against us. This is the new self. It's not a result of a makeover or a self-help program or a 12-step program, the power of positive thinking or a mere willful, willful determination. It's not a New Year's resolution that makes you into a new creation, a new man or woman in Christ. It's the result of God's redeeming power. He has come to each of us in the person of the Holy Spirit, changed us and dwells within us if, as Paul says, you are one who has learned Christ. When we choose to behave as if that change has not taken place, we are grieving that same Holy Spirit who did that work and who now dwells in us. But by his presence in us, we are empowered to overcome sin. We do not have to walk as we once did. We are new We can and we are commanded walk in newness of life. And so, as one who is speaking the word of Christ to you, I command you in his name, walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Gracious and forgiving God, fill us with your grace that we may not be futile in our thinking or sensual or greedy for impurity. Let us not be false, bitter, dishonest, corrupt in speech or malicious, Let us not grieve your Holy Spirit, but rather renew us in our minds, that we might be truthful, honest, edifying, kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, that we might reflect the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.